Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Indoor Environment Show. Um, great to have you here on uh, the special edition on Black Friday here, uh, coming uh, to you live from our studios in Syracuse, New York. I'm Bob Krell, uh, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Don Weeks, who is the uh, president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA, coming to us live from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I got that all right without without even a bump there. Yeah, about that. Pretty good. It's a, yeah, it's just I'm ready to do some shopping uh, online, of course. <laughs> I won't get anywhere near a retail outlet today. No. Um, so, so, so how how are things up in the Great White North? I, we haven't we haven't spoken for a little while. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, we started into winter, which uh, I think the, some of Western New York may have gotten some of that too. Yeah, we did. Uh, too. We did too. I mean, Buffalo got six feet of snow. We 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 got like four inches of snow here, which you know, it's not that bad. Nah. Yeah, it's it's getting towards the Christmas season, so everybody's uh, out shopping, as you said, and uh, I'm looking forward to a good good uh, session today. So uh, I guess without further ado, I'll let you introduce our guest. Right. So Dr. Paul Jacob Bueno de Mesquita has a PhD degree from the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Jacob is a postdoctoral scholar at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in the Indoor Environment Group. His position at the lab is as an environmental health scientist epidemiologist, and he's also, he also served previously for two years as a CDC fellow as part of CDC's Public Health Associate Program. So welcome to the show, Jacob. There we go. Hello. How are you today? Great. Wonderful to be here with you. Yes, we appreciate you being here. Uh, I just wanted to mention as well that um, that the um, this this particular episode is sponsored by Isiac. Um, so let's get started with some some questions. Uh, one of the first questions I have, and uh, is uh, I understand you have a BS from Georgetown uh, University in Human Science and Global Health, and a PhD, as I mentioned, and a postdoc from the University of Maryland School of Public Health and Environmental Health, and. Uh, Wondering, how did you get interested in indoor air quality and in particular IEQ and aerosol viruses and influenza? Great question. I have to attribute um, my introduction to this area to my professor, Dr. Rosemary Sokus at Georgetown University when I took her occupational and environmental health course. Uh, we were learning more about how environments and workplaces shape um, population health. And this was followed by a two-year uh, CDC fellowship where I was working at a municipal health department in Ohio, outside of Columbus. And I was assigned to work on some of the emergency preparedness plans for the county. And one of the main programs we were working on was um, preparing for pandemic influenza or an anthrax um, bio attack. And so there were these questions about how do we inoculate um, everyone in the county uh, within a very short period of time, or how do we distribute antibiotics to everyone within a short period of time? And um, since many of the plans revolve around a large mass of population coming through a public facility um, for a vaccine or to get a dose of antibiotics, um, it was a natural question about, well, if, if people are, are spreading influenza through the air and they're all congregating um, in, in large crowds together, is that really a useful strategy? Um, are, are we going to be spreading influenza to everyone by having them, them congregate like that? Um, also, at the same time, we were working on a tuberculosis contact investigation. And there were many questions about what sort of personal protective equipment we should be wearing um, when interacting with people that might be infectious um, with TB. And um, yeah, so the, I, I began to sort of piece together that there was a lot of um, perhaps um, lack of knowledge or understanding about the risks associated with airborne 
uh, viral transmission or airborne uh, TB transmission. Um, uh, and realized that um, Dr. Don Milton at the University of Maryland was studying this question and measuring um, aerosols, viral aerosols um, that people shed in their exhaled breath. And so that sort of led me, this, this sort of pu public health fellowship led me um, into this research area. What's interesting about that is, so that, that happened, you, you were doing that work prior to uh, the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak in 2020, right? So it uh, kind of <laughs> set the stage for you there. Exactly. Uh, my dissertation focused on quantifying the risk of airborne influenza transmission in a controlled setting. Um, I used data from a, a human challenge study where humans were infected with influenza uh, willingly and put into a room with susceptible, immunosusceptible people and um, half of whom were wearing a face shield and doing a stringent hand hygiene protocol. So, so we could really control for um, mode of transmission. Um, individuals exposed by the aerosol mode um, uh, were, were those were those individuals wearing the face shield and doing the hand hygiene because really the only mode only way they could be exposed is if sort of an aerosol went around their face shield and they and they mm -hmm. inhaled then um, so yeah we were doing all of this work we, we were trying to um, uh, get the word out about the importance of viral aerosols because we were detecting so much influenza virus um, in people with flu on our university campus at, at Maryland. Um, and yeah, then the pandemic rolled around. And so we quickly shifted. It was, it was quite simple to just start, um, start studying uh, viral shedding of SARS-CoV-2. We, we basically had the whole, uh, the Milton lab had, had everything set up to go. We had been doing this type of research for a long while. Yeah, I've, I've, Dr. Milton obviously uh, is one of the leading experts in this whole area over the last uh, couple of, uh, well, a couple of years, more than a couple of years now, unfortunately. Uh, he has been called upon many times to talk about some of this type of uh, activity that you have going in the laboratory or that, that it, it was going on in his laboratory. Uh, so uh, you did the initial onset of, the, I'm going to change a little bit in terms of questions. So you bring up a very interesting point about aerosol, uh, bioaerosols, did that strike a, a, a chord with, with other folks that were looking into the pandemic uh, from a different viewpoint, shall we say, from a medical viewpoint where they were looking and saying, that's not normally where we get people sick, which when, hence we ended up with the six, six uh, foot um, uh, distancing, this, distancing and also a lot of concerned about uh, formites at that time and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So this came from a different viewpoint, didn't it? What you were doing as opposed to what, say, some of them in the medical profession were, were, were worried about? Yes. Uh, we have a, a, a very strong, uh, but perhaps um, smaller community of, of scholars and scientists that are studying airborne viral transmission compared with um, the massive sort of medical, biomedical um, research and, and practice realm. Um, and so the, the medical community has a lot of power um, and a lot of influence um, and is still sort of operating on a little bit of outdated um, science with respect to transmission of respiratory infections. It seems perhaps the the pedagogy could be could be updated a little bit, um, and so yeah, we, we were working really hard. Actually, it was quite frustrating because in the first, I, I would say even up till now, but especially in the first year or two of the pandemic, we were spending a lot of effort on trying to communicate everything that we have learned about uh, airborne viral transmission, airborne influenza transmission, um, and what we were learning to also be true with airborne SARS-2 transmission. 
um, to the medical community. Um, especially we wanted to make sure that medical professionals were um, had access to respiratory protection on the job, um, treating and caring for um, uh, COVID-19 patients um, in, in healthcare settings. Um, we know that those settings are uh, high, high, higher risk um, for, for getting infected um, because there's, there's so much um, potential exposure. And that certainly wasn't the case, right? At the onset, it seems like there was a lot of uh, misinformation, right? I mean, or, or at least la lack of uh, consistent uh, messaging coming out to the general public. I mean, I think CDC was guilty of kind of knee-jerk reactions and not really getting a clear message out there. So I can see as a researcher that would be frustrating since, you know, the, your group had been, you know, been, been involved with stuff that would have been very valuable if it was actually becoming common knowledge at the onset, so. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so this is why we appreciate these opportunities anytime to, to be communicating um, our scientific findings and what we're learning. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we invest a lot of our time and energy into into doing, doing science. And it seems that uh, we're sort of gaining a clearer picture of, of airborne transmission and risk um, in indoor settings. And um, we really need to start using that knowledge more, um, especially while we're still in the midst of, um, of a deadly pandemic and um, also facing a potentially severe influenza epidemic this year, um, as well as other respiratory viruses that are going around. The pediatric uh, RSV has been quite concerning and um, rhinovirus infections in school and, and, and so forth. Um, it does seem like that, it, uh, it is a, uh, almost a perfect storm in terms of three different types of problems happening almost at the same time. So it, it's, uh, it's difficult. And, and of course, most of us have, have been, uh, given, I guess you would say the leeway to not wear masks in, 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 in environments. So getting people to go back to wearing masks, I think, would be a, a very tricky and very difficult, complex problem at this point, even though it may still be the best protection for many people. Exactly. We're in this world now where um, the pandemic has sort of been treated as over in many, in many right. places. And um, there's this great urge to to want to get back to normal normalcy and um i i also feel that <laughs> sure i, I want to get back to all the the great social um things that um that we have going on in our communities and uh this is where i would say that one of the ways that we can get there more safely is by focusing on cleaning our indoor air by ventilating filtering and using germicidal UV light um, can make indoor settings where we congregate um, much safer and, and where we can get back to a little more normality. But I mean, to that, to that point, um, you know, are we, are we ever going to, you know, does it ever make sense to go back to the status quo based on what we've learned, you know, via this pandemic and, you know, I mean, or or do we have to have, I think, some sort of a paradigm shift, in your opinion, you know, again, toward ventilation, towards air cleaning, towards towards even building design and, and how we do things, uh, you know, going back to normal might not make a lot of sense, right? I mean, depending on how right, you define right, normal. Right, right, right. Uh, so I guess when I say normal, I mean normal in terms of being able to more safely gather, but certainly if we could have a huge paradigm shift uh, in terms of doing air cleaning that would be really uh it seems like a wonderful population health um benefit that would have 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 widespread benefit um across the population for not only protecting from respiratory infections but also uh, promoting overall wellness indoors uh, where we spend almost all of our time <laughs> Yeah, it seems like even more so than we had before. We spend more time indoors. Yeah, so 
you, but, you're a, been described as an environmental health epidemi epidemiologist. Can you kind of describe for us what type of research do you do as an environmental health uh, epidemiologist? Yeah, um, well, much of my work has focused on, uh, with the Milton Lab, has focused on measuring and quantifying um, viral loads and exhaled breath from individuals infected with influenza or SARS-CoV-2 um, and understanding potential drivers of um, high aerosol, viral aerosol shedding loads. Um, so this is sort of where we apply some sort of um, models to understand sort of um, population shedding dynamics and factors that are associated with high or, or low shedding. Um, so uh, that's sort of one approach. We um, sort of another way that we sort of apply epidemiology is in um, population surveillance or monitoring um, of cohorts. So for example, uh, we did this in the dormitories at the University of Maryland where um, we enrolled people in our study and, and checked in on their symptoms through an app um, periodically, well, daily. And uh, when people reported some sort of illness, we would try to, to get them into the lab to give some samples um, and, and track infection that way. Um, it, we were at the same time measuring ventilation in uh, these different dormitories. And we sort of had a, a nice little natural experiment because one of the dormitories was um, recently renovated and had a much higher uh, ventilation, clean air delivery rate than a, another dormitory. Um, the, the, those were the two dormitories that we were studying. And, and we did see difference a difference in infection. Um, detection rate in these two dormitories with the lower ventilated dorm having um, almost, I want to say almost three times more um, infection um, detected, infection rate um, detected but, over the course of the study. And, and that makes sense, actually, if, you know, if, if you think about it, right, um, it's certainly like a lower ventilated space, uh, more opportunity for, you know, reentrainment and higher exposure rates. I mean, it seems logical. Yeah. Um, some of the modeling that I did in these dormitories showed that the ventilation rate can really make a difference um, for someone that's shedding, for example, uh, the median amount of airborne influenza that we observed in our campus community. Um, but we also did see that um, when there is a super shedder in the room, <laughs> someone shedding um, at perhaps the 90th percentile or higher in the community. Uh, it was much harder to um, sort of reduce the risk in those situations based on the, the sort of standard uh, well-mixed um, air assumption and, and risk model. Um, for example, between two roommates that spend a night together uh, sleeping and um, one of them shed a super shedder. Um, so this is where like potentially germicidal UV um, may be able to interrupt some of that transmission, but um, certainly perhaps not. Um, even if we were to dramatically improve ventilation or add a whole bunch of filtration, um, it might not. But I mean, you do raise an interesting point there because um, obviously even, you know, the, the clean air delivery rate obviously is is factoring in that it's in the occupant breathing zone, right? That you're actually delivering clean air to the occupant you know, where they're actually breathing it as opposed to just overall air changes in a space may not be that effective, right? If, if you know, it's stratified or, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of assumptions there that, you know, you get... Uh, laminar flow in the space or you get you know it's just not the case right in a lot of environments and of course in a sleeping environment that's even, that's totally different because you probably have bunk beds in a dormitory so now there's like you're stratifying via temperature and it just seems like the, the you know to actually come up with uh systems that really effectively work there is would be challenging right yeah for sure um 
I know if I were in a, a dormitory, I might want some germicidal UV light to sort of assure that we have some clean air like in, in the breathing zone. I think I'd want a bubble around my uh, bunk bed, to be <laughs> honest. I mean, if I have to be in a room with somebody. Yeah, it is interesting. Like, should we be wearing uh, baseball caps that have a little germicidal UV that, that's like cleaning <laughs> cleaning the air that we're breathing? Or um, should we be wearing around a little portal? I know there's been some discussion of wearing a little thing around the neck. Um, I, I got to tell you, through the, whole, through the whole pandemic, the early times, I had this small HEPA device, a USB charged with uh you, you hook the hose up to uh an n95 mask so you kind of looked like darth vader walking around with that um <laughs> and I, I was you know if i had to get on a plane i, I definitely was wearing that yeah why wouldn't you <laughs> yeah well the well-fitting respirators can really make a difference <laughs> i know i feel much safer when i wear mine um out in in public so bringing that, you mentioned the dormitory studies, but you also did a number of studies on K through 12 schools as well, which that has gotten a lot of publicity, uh, you know, nationwide in terms of what type of protections we should be giving to the uh, to those age kids. Uh, can you describe some of the uh, research that you did in, in, in the K to 12 schools? Yeah, so we've done two things. Um, here with Lawrence Berkeley National Lab um, regarding the schools. One is was a little sort of risk assessment um, where we applied um, known parameters of airborne um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, risk, uh, airborne transmission risk to a typical K-12, or I think we, we focused on high school and um tried to estimate some benefit some potential benefit by increasing ventilation increasing filtration and or increasing uh, or using implementing uh, some germicidal uv light some upper room uv um and sort of modeled uh what these uh, approaches how these approaches might influence the the R naught, um, the reproductive ratio, um, and sort of how much might be needed to get below one um, to sort of quell sort of a pandemic. The interesting thing in in these congregate settings is the potential for super spreading, um, which has been observed um, in quite a few high sort of high density um, settings um so I, I guess there's there's still some question about to what extent um these air cleaning strategies can it probably would reduce some risk but in in terms of like mitigating transmission up close at close range between people but certainly it seems like uh, there's good potential to reduce um, super spreading events or um, transmission happening uh, across uh, a, a room space um, among people that that didn't weren't really having a, a close interpersonal interaction. Um, and so that seems where a lot of this benefit, where, where there's more certainty that that there's a lot of benefit from implementing these indoor air cleaning policies and and so and so this also sort of lends well to that it, it you know it could be helpful to to keep some spacing um to um sort of reduce the the higher risk because we know there's this higher risk at, at close interpersonal sort of contact where you're breathing another person's sort of aerosol cloud um coming coming out um and and so so that's one of the things that we did in the schools um another thing that we did was a survey of of k-12 schools across the country to understand what they were doing in terms of air cleaning during the pandemic uh we found that we, we may have had a bias sample because we we reached out to schools within our network that were potentially tuned in to some of the air cleaning um, seminars or workshops that that 
um, were conducted potentially through the EPA's um, uh, schools, healthy schools program and um, or indoor air in schools program. I'm getting the the exact name uh, mixed up, but um and uh, uh, and elsewhere. So uh, we we did see that among our sample, these schools were um, conducting a fair amount of of air cleaning. There um, was a lot of interest in improving ventilation through HVAC systems or adding filters. What we also noticed is that only 4% of the school districts use germicidal UV in any way. Um, and many expressed con concerns uh, in focus group interviews of safety related to germicidal UV. And there was an unfortunate case that was cited uh, in, I think, Cobb County, Georgia, where whole room GUV 254 nanometer was um, shine down into classrooms and um, meant to be turned off when individuals were in the room, but there is some problem with that. Anyway, so there, there are these cases where germicidal UV is not uh, done properly. And um, unfortunately, that seems to have, have sort of spread some, some uh, bad PR <laughs> across, across the nation to other districts that might be interested in in trying it but um yeah so that that that's you know unfortunate as you mentioned uh, well other air cleaning devices have been used in schools that um you you know that may or may not necessarily be emitting uh ozone in some cases um uh, you know <laughs> I mean, I've seen in, in some reports that there is hundreds of thousands of these devices that have been spread throughout schools in the uh, in the United States alone. I mean, what 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 thoughts do you have on those types of air cleaning devices? Yeah, uh, so you're probably talking about um, the sort of range of ionizing um, ionizing, yeah, ionizing devices. Yeah, I don't know. They, um, it seems like you're you're probably correct that many that some of them may be producing some ozone. Although it seems like there are ionizers that may not be producing ozone or sort of solved the ozone problem. Um, I, I think there was a, a recent study that was sort of doing some some testing on some um, some of these devices. I mean. Um, I guess the other thing is, is sort of what else is, is being sort of, uh, sort of emitted, sort of emitted into the air, uh, free, you know, any sort of as part of, as part of the process, right? Yeah. I mean, free radicals or whatever. Exactly, yeah. I don't know. Um, it, there's some chemistry, there's, there's chemistry occurring if you're, if you're, you know, oxidizing things, you know I mean? Right. Obviously. So, yeah, I mean, it does seem like there has been in sort of the field some concerns about um, safety for for these devices, but also for um, in terms of how effective they um, might be in the sure. first place. Um, uh, yeah, the efficacy, I mean, questionable sometimes. It yeah. is. I mean, that, that's that's where I think you're you're talking about a recent study that they did where they I think they went beyond. Uh, the chamber type of study to much more larger facility uh, that they were doing the testing in, but it, it didn't necessarily show that this was all that effective in terms of air cleaning, uh, particularly of bioaerosols. Right, and the the other the other interesting thing is that we have a great suite of um, mm -hmm. air cleaning tools with filtration and germicidal UV and uh, ventilation um, that we know. That we have more good evidence for that we could be promoting um more so um i yeah. agree i mean it, it seems like we we end up uh looking for the magic box instead of basically taking you know taking the box and, and like uh the corsi uh, uh box that he's uh, he's he's taken uh to different uh, parts of the country uh, which is just strictly a ventilation type of uh, device rather mm -hmm. than basically trying to, you know, kill the virus or kill anything else by 
by having it emit uh, certain types of uh, ionizers. So we'll see how that all plays out. So I, I, I don't think that's the focus of what you've been doing, though, at, at Lawrence Berkeley at this point. No, it is not. <laughs> so, wait, so we do have some questions to the audience. I'm, I'm going to bring uh, the first one up here. Um, so uh, this was, I'm looking at installing upper level uh, germicidal UV light fixtures in the common areas of a low income senior's apartment building. Since the 12 feet. And uh, the rest of the question is wondering if it's better to go um, uh, UVA, safer, UVC, more effective. Can you offer any advice on that? <laughs> yeah, so um, all the time when we're talking about germicidal, U well, we're generally talking about uh, UVC. Um, and for upper room fixtures, uh, you can use it's this, it's the standard 254 nanometer wavelength UVC, um, at a 12 foot ceiling. That's, that's really great. You can use these open fixtures, um, that sort of, um, can get away with less louvers. So more of the light gets into the space and you can kind of point them upwards, um, above people's heads, um, and get, um, more air cleaning in that upper room zone. And if you have a ceiling fan, um, that can help mix the, the cleaned air from the upper room back down into, into the breathing zone, um, and, and, and sort of back, back around. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, that seems like a great way to use, um, germicidal UV, a great setting for it. Um, yeah, I hope you explore it more. <laughs> so, so we do have, we have one other question I'll bring up. Um, so you're assuming that controls that reduce overall SARS, uh, uh, COVID-2 exposure actually reduce transmission. I can't find any epidemiological studies documenting this and please provide citations of your work on this citations of other work, not based on modeling, but actual COVID cases. And there's some other follow-up to that, which we can get to later. So flash these up again. Controls reduce transmission. Yeah. It's a long one. See. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, um, of studies. I mean, there, there are a range of studies now that have sort of related, um, have, have managed to link, um, I think ventilation rate. I mean, even this, this study out at, from Italy, um, in, in schools, uh, with, with schools that are better ventilated, um, associated with, with lower transmission of SARS-CoV or low, lower incidence in schools. Um, um, I think there's, there's sort of more of these studies are coming. I think this also points to, um, sort of the, the challenge with doing these studies. Um, it would be great to have a little bit more. I mean, when we did these sorts of epidemiologic studies at the university of Maryland focused on influenza and other respiratory viruses, we had, um, we worked really hard to get a cohort, a strong cohort of students that were enrolled in our study that we could follow over time. Um, in the community, we don't really, um, we don't really have, uh, comprehensive, um, infection monitoring programs. And so oftentimes it's really challenging to link up, um, uh, different, you know, air cleaning strategy, use of air cleaning strategies, ventilation, germicidal UV with, with actual, uh, reductions in case counts. But, um, there's a lot of good evidence, um, mechanistically that these air cleaning strategies, um, do work and, um, uh, can actually are either removing the virus from the air or, um, inactivating it. Um, and so we can, based on everything that we know about um, the infectious dose generation rate um, and the relationship between um, that and infection, um, a given exposure, uh, there, there's sort of strong evidence that that the air cleaning strategies work. Um, I what else? I would say that. Um, 
Oh, also, it's also sort of known that um, for influenza, and there is some evidence for SARS too, that the dose makes the poison. Um, so the higher um, the exposure, the more likely to occur, but also more severe disease. Um, so this um, has been shown for, well, and also, <laughs> um, especially um, airborne uh, inhalation dose for influenza. Um, and so uh, reducing exposure in any way um, can give some benefit, even if infection is not um, uh, hindered in certain cases. Um, it's possible to potentially reduce the the impact of, so of the severity the severity on the individual that contracts mm -hmm. it. Okay. So I've noted in your uh, CV you you talked about that you conduct quantitative aerobiological modeling to estimate airborne transmission risk for SARS-CoV-2 and to support interventions in public spaces, schools, correctional uh, facilities, film sets, and others. Can you kind of describe to us the modeling that is completed uh, in order to estimate an airborne transmission risk of uh, SARS? Yeah, so uh, we use basic, I mean, there's a basic sort of general model for airborne viral transmission, the Wells-Riley <laughs> equation right. that many people are familiar with. And um, if you have CO2 measurements indoors, um, you can use the the Rudnick Milton rebreathed air sort of version of the Wells Riley equation. So the critical parameter there is the the quantum emission rate, which is the infectious dose generation rate from someone who's infected um, and shedding virus into an indoor space. Um, we sort of have some understanding of what this quantum emission rate is from um, studies that have quantified transmission, various outbreaks um, where the exposure, um, how long people were together in a space, um, the number of people in the space, how, how much ventilation was, was happening in the space or other air cleaning. Um, so these sorts of studies, um, like the restaurant in, in uh, Guangzhou or the um, choir in uh, Skagit Valley or, um, or others, uh, there have also been numerous for influenza. Um, so these sort of help us to benchmark sort of what the quantum emission rate might be. Um, and others, have 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 done some work linking um, the number of uh, genomes detected in the air with um, the sort of load of infectious virus to get some understanding of um, of sort of how infectious. Um, uh, when we say there's like you know a thousand copies of a viral genome in the air. Um, how, how much of that is really infectious virus. So there's there's people working on on that side of it right now. Um, although it's often sort of hard to culture um, the, the virus in general. Um, but but these these outbreak studies really have shown um, how infectious the virus can be and and have sort of given enough information about um, what is a reasonable estimate um, uh, in terms of doing some sort of risk uh, modeling or risk assessment. Um, often we may wanna take a conservative approach and consider that someone can be very infectious in an indoor space um, if we wanna to try to mitigate um, uh, the most amount of transmission possible. I was wondering, you, you mentioned uh, that you have done some work with the film industry and, and as a role as a scientist, a scientific advisor in reducing COVID-19 risk on film sets. Can you kind of give us a little bit of description of what, what that was about? Yeah, this is um, work that I did with Sabrina McCormick, um, who's a 
environmental health professor at George Washington University. She started um, a company, Pandemic Proof Productions. Um, as someone, she she's she has been involved in in film um, throughout her her career. Um, an Emmy winner for um, the years of living dangerously, mm-hmm. focused on climate change, and so she, she's involved in this industry that that didn't really slow down potentially that much. I, I'm not exactly sure what sort of the extent of of the slowdown of filmmaking was in Hollywood during the pandemic, but I do know that it was deemed an essential. Um, business or essential service um and so much of the film making continue was going on um uh throughout 2020 and the early part of the pandemic and 2021 um so sabrina was in there she was trying to make the um the film set safer uh so that there weren't um big transmission events happening on sets that can really um throw back a, a production. Um, so it was really wonderful to work with her. Um, we did a little bit of modeling um, to sort of figure out uh, um, uh, how to sort of work CO2 monitoring on sets. And, and if the CO2 levels reached a certain threshold, uh, what uh, um, th- then they would have people go out for a fresh air break. Um, they were also able to use um, heavy-duty air cleaners um because as i learned in this in this industry um when uh when they're shooting uh film and it's really cold outside um but they but it's actually like a scene in the summer um they have these like air heavy-duty air blowers um (laughs) that can like deliver a lot of like warm air into a space um and so we took advantage of those tools to sort of add uh, clean air into different spaces on sets, um, use some germicidal UV. Um, and also there was a, there were a team of people on these sets um, that, that really helped uh, enforce sort of pandemic controls. So it was, it was a wonderful uh, experience of like translating some of the basic uh, knowledge about what we know can help mitigate exposure um, onto the film sets. And um, they, it seemed to be remarkably um, effective. We weren't really, uh, we didn't really have um, many transmission events observed on the sets. And um, yeah. So Did they offer yeah. you a, a small part uh, as part of your compensation for being on the film. <laughs> Only you would follow up with that, Don. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, Amsterdam, the movie Amsterdam, we worked on, and um, yeah, you should see it. It's really really everybody was in it, and pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) That's yeah, that's the only reason why. Like some of the productions were were lower budget, so it was it was nice to work on like one where they, I mean, product they have to have enough uh, budget to to get sort of the pandemic proof productions out. Um, but yeah, so it was a good experience. Interesting. We, Don, we have, we have another audience question. I'm going to try sure. to pull it in now. Um, so um, there always seems to be a rub between local energy codes and national standards, uh, such as LEED, Passive House, et cetera, uh, which generally want to limit the ventilation rates uh, for energy saving reasons. So uh, using ERVs can help in new buildings, but what could be done in existing buildings? Mm. Interesting question. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is a a good point about um, now what we're thinking about. I mean, much of the focus of um, uh, the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab is focused on, uh, in in our particular area, is focused on uh, decarbonizing um, the built environment. And um, since buildings are a major consumer of energy uh, across the country. Um, so, yeah, but how do we do that? And at the same time, uh, try to promote um, health and wellness and reduce airborne um, transmission of disease. Um, so, yeah, the ERVs are are one thing. Um, so for retrofits, I guess another 
a sort of approach for retrofitting um, could it could be to use germicidal UV. Um, I know many many um, sort of institutions or schools that we've that we've um, surveyed have tried to um, redo their entire HVAC system, and that can be a hugely um, disruptive and um, comprehensive sort of change. Um, and and maybe it maybe it helps increase the ventilation rate overall by um, an air change or a few air changes um, per hour. But um, but yeah, there's a lot that could can be done by adding a simply adding a germicidal UV fixture um, with a ceiling fan or um, adding some filtration. Um, devices into the space. Um, there's a lot of talk about um, heat pumps now as, as sort of a nice, um, more energy efficient way of um, dealing with thermal comfort indoors, um, but also sort of providing some, some airflow. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good question that I think that we're exploring more how to how to provide sort of optimal um, clean air in a energy efficient um, way. I was wondering, you and your colleagues published the research paper in, uh, entitled Control of Airborne Infectious Diseases in Buildings, Evidence and Research Priorities. Can you please tell us about this paper and what are the research priorities listed in it? Yeah, well, this is a paper where we sort of uh, went to the literature and synthesized a lot of the wonderful work that um, had already been done or was actively being done uh, during the pandemic. Um, and uh, we sort of laid out a way for, to think about um, using buildings and, and air, air cleaning strategies that I've talked about here a lot, filtration and germicidal UV and ventilation and airflow um, as a way to um, mitigate um, airborne viral transmission. Um, so we, we're sort of summarizing um, what was known about how effective these strategies were, how they could be used. Um, we also did a little bit of a modeling piece to understand uh, to what extent um, exposure might vary at um, an interpersonal, interactive scale versus a room scale. Um, um, so we sort of, sh we showed that there was maybe um, mostly sort of less than um, tenfold difference in exposure across those, um, between those two different scales. Um, for most particle sizes, um, getting or, or, or approaching sort of a tenfold um, difference. Um, but we did also lay out some uh, research priorities into sort of three categories. Uh, one was in uh, well-characterized environments, uh, these sort of classic chamber studies um, and, and using um, computational fluid dynamics um, to support um, sort of understanding of within room um, spatiotemporal um, movement of, of infectious aerosols. Um, this, these sort of well-characterized environments could also be used to uh, better evaluate germicidal UV. Um, and uh, air cleaners, uh, filtration-based air cleaners. Um, there were also um, research priorities in terms of practice-based, and this is what I was getting into earlier in terms of population uh, monitoring and surveillance um, for infection in various settings. Um, this would sort of help with evaluating uh, air cleaning, um, effectiveness um, more broadly in the population, um, evaluating um, 
and sort of doing forensics on super spreading events or, or big outbreaks when they did happen to have some information on on how much air cleaning was there, how many people were there, um, how many people were infected. Um, and, and then there's also sort of some research priorities in terms of methodologies, um, metrics and test methods and um, sort of working on this question of how do we um, uh, get the most out of uh, the control measures that we have? How can we sort of optimize them and refine them and measure them and sort of give them a stamp of approval that um, they do what they say they're going to do. So um, we have a couple more audience comments and questions. Um, I wanted to uh, point out that this entire program, uh, the recording, the video recording, and the um, audio podcast will be available um, immediately after the show at global.healthyindoors.com. Um, you can go to the um, website uh, and uh, go to where we actually have it posted, which is, uh, so we'll get, get you right to that screen here. Um, da -da -da -da, yeah. The show, uh, the actual program for the show. And we're live streaming it. And it's under uh, Indoor Environment Show on your left-hand column and episode 13. So um, just to make sure you can find it. So one of the questions that um, the audience had for you, Jacob, is uh, could you um, actually uh, post the link to your uh, research? Um, you know, and we could we can include that with the show notes, or if you have a chance to put it up in the chat now, we can we can screen it up. On you the show. can you can find me on Google Scholar. <laughs> I think <laughs> most of the stuff is there, or ResearchGate. Um, yeah, it's online. And then, we, and then we had one more uh, question slash comment uh, from an audience member. Okay, here it is. Uh, Italian study referred to did not have any idea of what HVAC systems uh, ventilations were in the schools. So your UMD studies showing HVAC controls reducing transmission were apparently uh, limited to flu, not uh, COVID. Well, it should be SARS-CoV-2. Um, have you uh, or other researchers actually shown this for SARS? I can't think of anything off the top of my head um, for SARS-2. Um, I'm not sure. And um, with respect to the Italian study, um, yeah, you're right. Like a lot of the uh, existing evidence that we have um, is a little bit crude um, because, and, and this speaks to sort of the research priorities that I mentioned before, that we don't necessarily have um, systems set up sort of across the society <laughs> to be sort of comprehensively taking measurements about indoor air quality, ventilation, air cleaning, and at the same time, um, infect, you know, tracking infections in a population. So um, there are various school districts that are kind of doing this and um, it's it sort of, it, you know, I, I, I would think that in the coming years, with all of the um, uh, infection monitoring during the pandemic, we'll, we'll probably see more of, the, of this research um, coming out. Um, there's a lot of sort of anecdotes about um, lots of transmission that happen in poorly ventilated um, in spaces. Um, it, it, it seems like there hasn't been uh, observed um, many super spreading events happening in, in places that are are highly ventilated or using a lot of germicidal UV or, or filtration. So we sort of have these like sort of crude categorical sort of understanding about <laughs> um, about this in in, in real life. Um, and th this is actually something that interests me a lot. Like I, I would love to to sort of present, you know, do an intervention study where we, we you know, add GUV to, to a school and track the infections over time, add it to a restaurant and, and be measuring every, you know, um, infections and in people that, that are um, at that restaurant over time. Um, there, there's things to do, but we need um, funding and support um, to be able to do it. Um, sure. And yeah. Well, I There's mean, the, anec the anecdotal is a starting point for your epidemiologic studies anyway. I mean, it has to start somewhere. 
Yeah, there. I mean, there is also a lot of opportunity now with big federal mon money coming for uh, school indoor air quality improvements um, with the ESSER funding and even the um, the bipartisan um, uh, bill that passed in the fall um, that will support sort of these sort of air cleaning strategies in schools. And, and we know from our surveys of schools that this money really does help and is being used um, uh, to buy up air cleaners, improve filters to MERV 13 or better. Um, um, so we, we know that this money is, is sort of is being used. We also know well, it, that- it can be helpful if they have the right guidance. So I mean, because the, the other thing is that there's this assumption that schools will make the smart decisions, but they're not necessarily uh, fully informed consumers when they're going out and purchasing these technologies that, you know, maybe within the district, they don't have that expertise. Yeah. And that's like, that's a huge opportunity for us right now that we need to make sure that um, any school district that is going to use these funds and wants to make these changes feels like they have the technical support and guidance um, to be able to make the best decisions get the best benefit for their money um, get the best benefit in terms of uh, infection control and, and indoor air quality in their schools um, one of the things that's interesting is we also found uh, some differences in um, school district characteristics um, in terms of the social disadvantage and uh, with respect to um, how much implementation of air cleaning was was being done in the district so for example districts that had a higher percentage of free and reduced price meal eligibility um, uh, were potentially more likely to not have implemented as many um, control measures, um, indoor air quality control measures during the pandemic. Um, uh, districts that had a higher percentage of non-white students um, had a similar finding. Um, and this goes for not only the control measures, but also indoor air quality monitoring, um, such as CO2 monitoring or um, uh, evaluation of HVAC systems and airflow. But that's not a surprise, though, right? I mean, there's, you know, it's pretty well known that there's a racial inequity in public schools. I mean, this, this is, you know, and I think maybe this recent pandemic, you know, really illustrated that pretty heavily. Exactly. Yeah. It's like nothing that we maybe didn't already suspect. I guess one of the things that was interesting is we thought that um, we thought that maybe uh, larger school districts maybe ones that that had staffing or or resources to do more air cleaning but we we also showed that that wasn't necessarily the case that oftentimes it was a large large larger districts that weren't doing um, as much air cleaning um, but that could also be because some of these larger districts were districts that were um, had greater social disadvantage as well well, we're out of time. Uh, we do appreciate uh, this um, visit. Uh, I should mention that uh, we were originally having two um, researchers here. Um, Marco Philippe King was uh, unable to join us today. We hope to catch him on a later date. Uh, but we do appreciate, Jacob, what uh, you being here and, and, uh, and exploring with us some of the things that you've been doing in terms of your research. And uh, I thought it was uh, really worthwhile. So back to you, Bob. So, yeah. So also, uh, you know, wanted to remind uh, you that the uh, this program, right, the uh, Indoor Environment Show is a joint production of uh, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, ISIAC, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA. A lot, a lot of words to get out there quickly. Uh, but it, we've been doing the show for uh, over a year now, and uh, it's uh, always, always a pleasure to bring experts like Jacob on to, uh, you know, get involved in, uh, and speak a bit more on some of the interesting stuff that they're doing and uh, talking practical applications with it. So uh, we'll be back again next month, right? Uh, I, yep. I believe, right? And it's somewhere before the holidays. Um, we, we, we actually don't have a date yet or do it. Not, not as yet, no. Yeah, it's going to it's going to be late December, though. So uh, stay, stay tuned. And again, uh, this episode um, is uh, 
is available uh, now uh, at global.healthyindoors.com. So you can go to that website and scroll down the left side and look for indoor environments uh, on the left tab, and you can see all uh, all 13 episodes. How exciting! So I guess without without further ado, I want to thank Jacob for uh, joining us today. Don, hang on a second, all... Jacob. Uh, after we uh, close the pro uh, the program, if you don't mind. Oh yeah, I guess that that that's our post thing that nobody gets to see. Uh, but it's it's the secret club, you know. You're you're part of the club now, Jacob, because you've been you've been a guest on the show. Uh, but anyway, we'll be back again. Uh, we'll back again uh, next month for another exciting broadcast of the Indoor Environment Show. Until that time, uh, please stay safe and healthy.